Hey, good morning. I'm so glad that you are here. I'm excited to see you on Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. If you have a Bible, I invite you to uh, open it with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to stop our regularly scheduled programming in the Gospel of Matthew to consider and to contemplate and to remember on this morning the core of our faith rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Romans chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5. Verse 5. Let me just read to you the first verse from Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Paul writes, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Let me pray for us before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, this morning, as is true of every morning where we arise to meet you with your fresh mercies, we stop to remember that you are not dead, but alive. We remember that the tomb is empty. We remember that you, the one who died, is now the one who lives and lives forever. You will never die again. And Lord Jesus, we ask that as we gather together as resurrected people who have been crucified with you on the cross, who have been risen to walk in newness of life, awaiting the full resurrection into glory, God, would you help us by the power of your Spirit to to help us to understand your Word, to behold your glory, to love and be captivated by the Gospel in a fresh way this morning. Lord, we we pray that you would help us by your Spirit day by day, moment by moment. Lead us, equip us, empower us, motivate us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we believe as Christians that we are saved, that we're justified, that we're adopted and more by grace alone. You and I did not earn our salvation. You or I didn't uh, work to accrue some kind of merit to receive something that was owed to us. It is all by the grace of God alone. And it's through faith alone. So the means by which how you and I become followers of Jesus, how we become saved is by believing in Christ So if the Christian faith is faith in Christ, then the work of Christ informs and even shapes who we are now. The work of Christ gives clarity to who we were before we came to Christ, but it also motivates and even grounds our self-conception day by day. So when you think about who you are, Who am I? When you're asking that question in light of everything going on in the world or the conversations among your peers or the things that are happening in your family, when you're asking yourself this question of identity, who am I? Well, if you're a Christian, then everything about that answer is going to be formed and shaped by Christ. And all this is an unbelievably rich cave for us to mine in for the rest of our lives and for the rest of eternity. But for this morning, we want to focus in on the condensed version of Christ's work seen in the Scriptures as His death 
and his resurrection. I'm going to tell you a fun word. We're going to learn it together. Uh, The word is, I'm just going to spell it for you. Maybe you want to write this down and save it for later and impress some friends with it. S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. Synecdoche. Say it with me. Synecdoche. Yeah, you got it. Okay. So what is a synecdoche? Well, let me just give you an example of maybe a synecdoche. Listen, listen to the words I'm about to say and how I'm about to say it. Never going to give you up. Ah, okay. All right. So, so when I say never going to give you up, these five words in the way that I'm saying it, you know automatically that what I'm actually saying is much more than what I've said. That when I say these five words, you think a whole song. You may even think a whole internet culture, right, of rickrolling people. That's what a synecdoche is. It's, it's one part that stands in as a representative for the whole thing. So we use this all the time in kind of normal language, right? So we could say, uh, yesterday Atlanta won the game. Well, what do I mean by Atlanta? Well, I mean the Atlanta Braves baseball team. Right? But that one word is just a part that's standing in for this, this more specific reality, this fuller reality. So uh, a synecdoche is used, th- those, that version, that language is used for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? What point does the death of Christ have if he didn't live a sinless life? Right? What point would Jesus' sinless life be if he wasn't son of God and son of man come from a virgin in Mary's womb, right? Like, and, and what would all of those things be had they not been promised beforehand by God in the Old Testament? And, and what would the cross and the resurrection be if, if not for his ascension into heaven and his proclamation to the heavenlies that uh, the price had been paid and the Spirit is sent? The death and resurrection of Jesus is a synecdoche. It, it contains in those two words the total of Christ's work. All of his work is wrapped up in this event from Friday to Sunday. So today we're going to focus on Paul's point here in Romans chapter 6. He wants us to see that both the death and resurrection of Christ have secured our salvation because we have died with him. We have hope that our resurrection will be like his as well. And in the meantime, The life we now live is not in our own power, but in the power of God through Christ. So let's continue reading. We've got two or three things I want to highlight for us, and then we'll give some time to discuss. Look with me in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So if you're taking notes this morning, first big idea is this. We died in Christ's death. We died in Christ's death. Paul wants to solidify here in Romans chapter 6, our conviction on what the death of Christ accomplished, as well as what it means for us. He begins by saying, we know. In verse 6, we know whatever he's about to say is something that you and I should have confidence in. It's not something that you should have doubt over that in, in the sense that you don't know whether or not it's important, that you think that it may or may not have happened. No, we know these things to be true. 
But there's a lot going on in verse 6, isn't there? Paul says our old self, our former life, the life we lived under Adam in sin, in our own fallen and twisted and broken and weak self was crucified with Christ. So when Christ died for the church 2,000 years ago on a cross, the church died with him. If you are a Christian, you have died because Christ's death is credited to you. Now, why is this the case? Why is it important that Christ's death counts for us? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, Paul says. Now, this doesn't mean your physical body. The body of sin needs to be brought to nothing, but not your physical body, your whole sinful self. Sometimes Paul uses the word body, like he does here in Romans chapter 6, but in other times you read through the New Testament letters, you see this word flesh. And often, this is the idea that you and I have a corrupted nature. Like, what does it mean to be me fundamentally right now? It means that I'm broken by sin apart from Christ. I was born in iniquity, the psalmist tells us. That all of us have a corrupt nature. We have this sinful flesh. We have this body of sin, Paul says. And it needs to be brought to nothing. And it has been. That, that phrase, brought to nothing, could mean disabled or dismantled or destroyed. But the idea is that it is done away with. So Jesus dies on the cross and we die with him so that our sinful self might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Apart from Christ, students, you and I are stuck. We're stuck making decisions that are always sinful. We're stuck having desires that are always tainted with sin. We're stuck with this inability to do the righteous thing. Now, obviously, there are people in this world who are not Christians, who we might say in, in, in a lot of senses are good people. You might think of uh, people from other religions who are very faithful in their practice of their religion, that they are they're kind and they're compassionate and they're, they're uh, friendly and they're patient. All of these things we can see out in the world. But the Scriptures tell us that everything done apart from faith is sin. And so ultimately, the world might give us the veneer, the, the, the wax fruit, so to speak, of holiness. It might look good. From afar, it might seem like the real thing. On your table, it probably looks very attractive. But it is an imposter. Right? It is not what, it's, what it says it is. So I look at that apple, and I think that's a good-looking apple. And if I go to try to bite in that apple, I will be disappointed because that's not what it really is. And in the same way, the good in the world, although God's common grace has, has blessed humanity and blessed creation in various ways, ultimately good as in that which gives glory to God for God's sake. That's impossible. Apart from being freed from this enslavement that you and I are under because of our sin. That's why the body of sin, that's why our sinful self needs to die. That's why it needs to be crucified with Christ because if it isn't, then we're still enslaved. 
All we can do is sin. All our righteousness will continue to be like filthy rags. But the death of Jesus sets us free from sin. The dominion that sin once had in us has now been conquered. The bonds of sin that once shackled us have now been broken. Not because you or I did anything, but because Christ experienced the wages of sin on our behalf. And we know that the wages of sin is death. So the sting of death, the wage, its power over us, if we are in Christ, has been brought to nothing. So students, if you trust that Jesus died on the cross for you, then the power of sin and death has been forever broken. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Now, often it doesn't feel that way, right? For a lot of us, for a lot of the time, we still feel as though we are bent towards sin. We're bent towards unrighteousness. We'll get to that in just a moment. But before we get there, we have to look at the end, and then we'll work our way back. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So not only did we die in Christ's death, but if we are followers of Jesus, we have this promise and this hope that number two, we rise because of Christ's resurrection. We rise because of Christ's resurrection. Look again at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. This is almost a straight repetition of verse 5. This is Paul's refrain over and over. He's trying to get the church in Rome to get it deep down into their heart and for you and I to feel this in our bones. If I've died with Christ... I will live with him. If I have died with Christ, I will live with him. And this life we live is not merely about the present, nor is it only about the future glory that awaits us when Christ returns to put an end to sin and death once and for all. It's both. It's both now and then. It's both now, but not yet. It's already, but it's coming. Listen to John Stott. He says it like this. He says, life is resurrection anticipated. Resurrection is life consummated. I'll say that again. Life today, what you and I do moment by moment, is in anticipation of this resurrection that we have yet to experience. But that resurrection that we have yet to experience is the consummation or the culmination of all that's going to take place in our life. In other words, our life in Christ now is pointed towards or oriented around and fueled by and headed in the direction of and grounded on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything about our life is formed and shaped by the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 9. We know. There it is again. Paul wants us to have confidence in what he's talking about. Not only confidence in the death of Christ, but confidence in his resurrection. Christ being raised from the dead, he says, will never die again. 
That's unlike Jairus' daughter. We know the story, right? There's a man going to find Jesus because his daughter is very sick. And he tells Jesus, if you'll just come, I know that you can heal him. And Jesus says, don't fear, just believe. Wherever you take, where, like, where is she? Let's go to the house. And by the time they get there, she's died. And Jesus says, no, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And the mourners and the family, they laugh at him, thinking that he's just insane. He's totally missed it, that they obviously can understand whether or not a person is dead. But what does Jesus do? He takes her by the hand and says, Talitha kumi, meaning little girl, I say to you, arise. And she fills once again with life. And breath fills her lungs once again after it had been extinguished. And she rises from the bed alive. What was dead is now alive. Or maybe, maybe you think about the story of Lazarus, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. In the Gospel of John, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, Lazarus, Jesus, the one that you love, is ill. He's sick. And Jesus does something very interesting, right? Instead of dropping everything and running to the, the, the one who is in need of his power, the one who is in need of his grace, the one who is in need of, of what he alone can offer, he waits. He waits for a few days. And so by the time he gets to Lazarus, he's been dead for four days. He's been in the tomb. Mary and Martha, distraught, saying to Jesus, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, you know he'll, he'll live again. And the women say, well, I know that, that the Lord is going to come to bring resurrection. And we believe that he's going to come. And we believe in the resurrection. You're right. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm the resurrection. Do you believe this? And they believe. They believe, but the crowds around Lazarus and his family, not as convinced, right? They're going, surely this man who opened the eyes of the blind, surely he could have healed a sick man. I mean, they're using Lazarus. They're using the death of the friend Jesus loved to make a point against Jesus's authority, against his power, against his goodness. And that text tells us that Jesus was troubled in his spirit He's weeping with the sisters of Lazarus. And finally, he says, where have you laid his body? So he goes and he prays. They open the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And out walks after four days, a risen Lazarus. Back from the dead. Filled with life again. What we know in Romans chapter 6 is different than what happened to Jairus' daughter and to Lazarus. Those two people experienced an incredible miracle. But they were revived. They were resuscitated. They would eventually die again. But Jesus was resurrected. He didn't prolong death like Jairus' daughter or Lazarus. He conquered it. Death, Paul says, no longer has dominion over him. There's a really common saying in America that there's two things that you can count on, and that's death and taxes, right? Death and taxes. You know, like, this is going to happen, right? Like, 
Am I going to see that, that my favorite band in concert one day? I don't know. But what I do know is death and taxes. Am I going to find a husband? Am I going to find a wife? Am I going to get the dream job I've always wanted? Maybe. I'll tell you what you do know. You're going to die. And you're going to pay people. <laughs> right? Death and taxes. In a very real way, death has dominion over us. We know, like maybe we don't know, like maybe you, you don't dwell on death. I don't think teenagers necessarily should dwell on death very much. Uh, except, except that, that historically there's been this refrain, kind of a mantra, kind of a, a life principle that many people have said to themselves and, and thought about. And it's this, it's a Latin phrase, memento mori, remember death, remember death. And the fact is, apart from the return of Christ, death in some sense has dominion over us, but we're all going to meet it one day. If Jesus tarries, we are going to expend our days on this earth. But if death no longer has dominion over him, and we're in him, then death no longer has dominion over us. What does that mean? What's true of Jesus is true of us. Death no longer has dominion over us. Death is not the end for the Christian. The world will tell you, like, do all that you can before you die. And what they mean is, because after that, it's over. Not true for the Christian. Verse 10, he died... And the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So Jesus died bearing the sins of his bride. But Paul continues, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now he lives to God and he sustains the life of his bride. One day when Christ and his bride are together once and for all, she will be glorified. That is the people of God, the church. She will no longer bear the effects of her old life. The sorrows of the broken world will evaporate. The disappointments of unmet expectations will be gone. The sorrows, the pains of living with broken desires will be healed. The regrets of sins committed and things left undone will be wiped away. So in the death of Christ for us, the penalty of sin is removed, atoned for once and for all. And in the resurrection life that God in Christ has promised to us, the very presence of sin gives way to the presence of God himself. Now, instead of living in a broken reality, living with a broken heart and a broken mind and broken actions among broken people, the future that awaits us is wholeness and righteousness because the presence of sin will be utterly replaced with the presence of God. As present as sin is in your life, God will be more present. But that's then and not now. So verse 11 meets us right where we're at. In between the death of our old self and the full realization of the resurrection life. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the third point. Consider yourself dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ. Paul says, after having said all that I've said about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and all that affords you and me, those things that we know about his death and those things that we know about his resurrection, so then consider. Consider. What does that mean? To give it thought. To contemplate it. To to chew on it in your mind. To dwell on it. To meditate upon it. In other words, to think. To use your mind. To to think. To consider. In other words, our day-to-day dying to self and living in the power of the Spirit of Christ is connected to our contemplation of who we are in Christ. Your day-to-day, moment-by-moment, living in the fullness of the Spirit, keeping your eyes fixed on the kingdom and on God's righteousness, hungering and thirsting for that righteousness, all of that is going to be tightly connected to your contemplation of who you are in Christ. It means that we will only know ourselves rightly when we know God rightly. And that takes time. It takes time. In one sense, it'll take forever to know God. And we'll never finish. And that will be amazing. Because we believe that God is infinitely beautiful. He's infinitely glorious. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely wise. He's infinitely majestic. He's infinitely holy. So for eternity, you and I will discover new things that will arrest our heart over and over in increasing, increasing, increasing measure. Like you'll never, you'll never be bored of God. Like ever. But in the meantime, you have the opportunity to get to spend time with the God that you will forever get to know. The more you spend time with something, the more time you spend with someone, the more familiar it becomes, the more natural it seems. And although you may forget certain things and need to be reminded of what you know from time to time, your knowledge of that thing over time roots deep down in you. My my favorite example, and you've heard me say this before, is, is the example of driving a car. Like for those of you who have your driver's license, like if you've recently turned 16, maybe in the last couple of years or so, or maybe you've had your driver's license for a long, long time. Those of you who don't have it yet, just trust me. When you took your driver's test, it was probably a little nerve wracking. You probably were wondering, okay, I have to always think about, okay, where are my hands? Where are my hands? Where are my hands? Okay, mirrors, 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 mirrors. Okay, where are my feet? What are my feet doing? Brake, brake, which side is the brake? Right? And like you're, you are overthinking, right? You are so engaged because you're like, if I fail this driver's test, I will have to do this terrible experience again. So I better do it right the first time. And so, and you have, you know, the driving instructor or whoever it is. For me, it was a police officer, which was just even more intense. Because it's like, if I run this stop sign, am I going to fail and get arrested? Like, is, how, how does that work? He's like, just go ahead and drive to the police station. Like, just go, we're just going to book you there. Okay. I mean, I was so, I got done with my driver's test and I was exhausted. Even though all I did was, uh, 
uh-huh. right? Like, uh, right, that's it. I know, like, I wasn't doing squats for an hour. Like, I was just driving a car. It was difficult because it was unfamiliar. Because I hadn't had the practice of a seasoned driver. But now, I don't think about it at all. Like, I don't think about, like, oh, man, okay, which side is the gas on? How do I, how do I turn this thing on? Like, it just happens. It's like second nature. It's, it's what a guy named James K. Smith says, it's like knowledge in my bones. I don't have to think about it. It just happens. The same is true with our relationship with the Lord. When we first become Christians, when we first believe the gospel, there's this beautiful kind of honeymoon phase of Christianity where everything is awesome and everything is passionate and everything is amazing and you want to learn all of these things and then life happens and that passion starts to wane. And we realize that the things that we know about God may not be even scratching the surface of who God is. And that overwhelms us because it's so different. It's so far. It's so foreign. I don't even know how to begin to penetrate this this impossible task, knowing God. And so I coast. I just live my life like everybody else. I just kind of do the things that everybody else seems to be doing. I kind of, uh, I kind of, incorporate the kind of language that people around me incorporate. I, I, I encourage or discourage the same ways that the people around me encourage or discourage. And instead of following the pattern of life in God through Christ, I just kind of pattern the life of the world. And guess, guess which one becomes natural? The one that you practice. And as you practice it, life in God seems all the more distant. It seems all the more unnatural. Why? Because you've considered yourself alive to sin and dead to God in Christ. You're living in this kind of pathway of the world. And and Christians do this. I do this. You do this. This is is not like a, this is a universal problem for Christians. Which is exactly why Paul is telling the church in Rome, you have to remember You have to consider this. You have to dwell on this. You have to meditate on this. You have to chew on this in your mind. You need this to burrow itself deep down in your soul. That's not who you are. That's not you. Because you're dead to sin. And you are alive to God in Christ. And just because you don't live that way, doesn't mean it isn't true. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. If you find yourself as a Christian thinking about your own life and going, you're right. My life doesn't live. It doesn't doesn't display the life of God. It displays the enslavement to sin that I used to live in. And for whatever reason, those shackles that were broken and that enslavement that was conquered for me, I've just taken it back up again. It's like the Israelites when they're in the wilderness, right? They're in the Exodus and they're following Moses and they're like, it's hot. We're tired of manna. There's so much quail. All this sand everywhere. I wonder if we just go back to Egypt, if they'll take us back. And you're like, 
What? Like they murdered all of your sons. Like, do you forget that? Like, they enslaved you. And you're like, I just think it might be better than following Yahweh. But what do we do? We've been freed from sin and death. Freed from our former way of life. We find ourselves, for some reason, just drawn to go back. Which is why we have to remember. We have to consider we're dead to sin. The habit that we want to form as followers of Jesus in light of his death and resurrection is the habit of considering who God is, knowing God rightly, and because of that, knowing who we are in him. And that reality is what frames our whole life moment by moment. And that takes time. So if you're sitting here thinking, that's not true of me, don't freak out. The best time to start that practice was when you first became a Christian. The next best time to start that practice is right now. Like begin today. That's why no one here is expecting you to be sinless and glorified and without any problem. Like you're not... I don't know if you know this. I mean, maybe it's just kind of like secret time. You're not fooling anyone around your table when you say that you don't have anything wrong going on or anything bad going on or there's no problems in your life. Like you're definitely not following your table group leader. And you're probably not following the other people around your table who might say the exact same thing because that's the language that's natural to us. But you're not fooling anyone. So we're not expecting perfection. We're not expecting glory. We're not expecting no problems in your life forevermore. But it's also why we're expecting a growing love for the Lord. A growing commitment to pursue integrity and holiness and humility and those qualities that we see so clearly in Christ. So what's a reason for you to fight temptation? What's a reason for you to step out in faith even when it's scary? To have that difficult conversation with someone you love who's not following God. To get in the Bible even when you don't feel like it. To pray honest, broken, awkward prayers. To ask for help. Because resurrection is coming. And so today, I get to live to God. Because resurrection is coming and because I've died to my old self, I get to live this way. It's not I have to live. It's not I, I get to live to God. Our life between our coming to Christ by faith and Him coming to us by sight is a wonderful gift. Like, don't miss this. Like, this isn't just like... It's not as though God is surprised and forgot that there's this like period of time that you just have to exist between becoming a Christian and Jesus making all things right. That wasn't lost on him. Like what, what you're doing today matters. That the path that you're on, the life that you live, the things that you say and think and do, they matter. It's a wonderful gift. And in light of the resurrection, I pray that we might all see it and consider it together. Soon, and if you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
This is the gift of an incredible Savior. This is the gift of the Jesus who died and rose. This is the gift that you and I now get to steward by faith. We get to steward it together. So let's pray, and then let's consider it together. Let's pray.